Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you today. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone in here, please like the show. Just give it a thumbs up. That's a very easy way for you to support this show. Help us beat back the corporate overlords who try to control our lives and deaths. Maybe that's a little dramatic, but definitely our lives. And you can also, if you're up for it, why not just share this stream? That would be great. Remember to hit like, share, and subscribe. And to subscribe, you just hit subscribe and then you hit the bell. You can, of course, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you'll have for this week, we already released a great interview with Brianna Joy Gray, where she talks about a lot of really interesting things, including how the left should interact with the right, whether they should interact with the right, how they should try to convert certain people, not convert others. And of course, she does indeed respond to Jenk Uger calling her a fake leftist. I also invite you all to come to the call-in that we're doing after the stream. I'll be talking about what we talk about on this episode with our wonderful guests who we're bringing on shortly, Derek Davison. We'll also be talking about what happened on the episode with Brianna Joy Gray. And I'll be probably venting and fetching about some online trolls. I think those are all the announcements, right? Colin, Colin's a free app. The link to that is in the description. I think we can just get started with the show. I'm pretty excited to bring in our guest. He is the co-host of the American Prestige podcast, which is an excellent podcast that I highly recommend. He began his journalistic career by covering the 2014 Ukraine crisis and the 2015 Iran nuclear deal talks for Low Blog, where he later served as editor. Around that time, he started a blog that eventually evolved into the Substack newsletter, Foreign Exchanges. As I said, he is the co-host of the American Prestige podcast with other friend of the show, Daniel Bessner. And he has degrees in Middle East studies and Near Eastern languages and civilizations from the University of Chicago. So welcome on to the virtual stage, Derek Davison. Hey, Katie. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. Of course, thanks so much for coming. So this is interesting. Did you think in 2014 when you were studying the Ukraine crisis that it would come to this in 2022? Uh, I wish I could say I had that much foresight, but uh, I probably would have been playing the stock market or something if I could predict that far right. in advance. Yeah. Um, n- no, I, I thought things were going to stay even. I mean, I, I will cop to even like up to the point of the invasion. I I was sort of incredulous that uh, it would come to this. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I really thought that things would stay perpetually uh, the way they were with Russia sort of, you know, controlling, uh, annexing Crimea. You know, it's not recognized, but they've they've done it. Um, and sort of, you know, having the the Donbass region and the separatists to play around with to, to keep Ukraine kind of in a state of instability, I, I figured they would be satisfied with that. 
And what was it that caught your attention in the first place with the Ukraine crisis of 2014? Well, I mean, part of it was I was, you know, just out of grad school and, um, you know, looking for something to write about that I could do as a freelancer, as a brand new freelancer. Um, and and that happened around that time. So it, it was just kind of my, you know, something I could cover. Um, but it's, I mean, it, there's a lot of facets to the conflict. I mean, sort of, you know, you, you, you roll up the kind of, you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union and the ongoing aftermath of that, this, uh, you know, very ancient history, you know, between uh, the the Ukrainian and Russian, you know, the various kind of Slavic peoples that I thought was interesting. I mean, none of that, I don't, I don't, that, you, know, you get into like uh, very reductive thinking when you, when you go down that road. But uh, at the time, I thought that was kind of interesting, just the like kind of splintering apart of these, uh, these people that had historically been, been linked quite a bit. As someone who has studied this, what do you think the media misses or does not inform people about that's relevant to the conflict we're now seeing? Like, what's the historical background you think is is missing from our conversations? I mean, I think that in general, the the eight years, yeah, eight years of kind of back and forth along the front line shelling occasionally, you know, you had... Uh, shooting across the the front line in the Donbass, this like frozen conflict. Uh, I think the media, like for for most of that time, just basically ignored it, unless there was some kind of major, you know, artillery barrage in a given day, and you know, enough people got killed that it was worth kind of covering. But I feel like, I mean, you know, and some of this is hindsight, but it had the media covered that situation as less like okay they've they've you know reached a ceasefire we can forget about that and had gone more you know day to day kind of covering what was going on in this place on both sides of the front line uh you know what the ukrainian military was doing to to people living in the separatist area what the the separatists were doing to people on the ukrainian side uh, of the front line i feel like what happened early this year. Now the invasion may have still been a surprise, but I feel like for, you know, for many people, the fact that there is this, this, there had been this kind of tense situation around this region came almost as a surprise. Like, Oh wait, that's, that's still going on. Like uh, I feel like there was a, there were some balls dropped there along the way. And where are we now? How would you describe the moment that we're in right now in terms of Russia, Ukraine, I mean, I, I was almost going to say like the whole world, which sounds kind of ridiculous. But in terms of the sanctions, you know, there is an article in Bloomberg that was called Corporate Self-Sanctioning of Russia Has U.S. Fearing Economic Blowback. And the article read, Russia's invasion of Ukraine galvanized the U.S., U.K. and European Union to unleash a slew of sanctions meant to punish Vladimir Putin's government and pressure him to pull his forces back. But some Biden administration officials are now privately expressing concern that rather than dissuading the Kremlin as intended, the penalties are instead exacerbating inflation, worsening food insecurity and punishing ordinary Russians more than Putin or his allies. So what's happening there and who could have seen that coming, by the way? Yeah, I mean, only anybody who's paid attention to U.S. sanctions in Iran and North Korea and Venezuela. Um, yeah, nobody really. Nobody no one, could, yeah. could have foreseen this. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I think when you get into questions of sanctions efficacy, you have to ask why they were imposed in the first place. And there's always like the public reason and then, you know, the reasons that 
nobody wants to talk about publicly. Um, I, there's no, I mean, these the sanctions were imposed in response to the invasion, and they were ca- characterized as uh, retaliation for the invasion, meaning essentially, you know, we want to hurt the Russian economy so much that uh, Vladimir Putin has no choice but to turn around and pull his soldiers out. Nobody who's witnessed the way the United States has used sanctions and the effect that they've had uh, around the world over the last even 20 years could have thought that it would work out that way because that's not how sanctions, I mean, they're, they're clearly sanctions uh, have never been effective on that short a time frame in changing the behavior of the target country. Um, now, if you take a much longer term approach here and suggest that, you know, maybe these sanctions were imposed not for the immediate reason or the immediate uh, cause of trying to get Russia to uh, rethink its its actions, but to isolate the Russian economy and cut it off and do what what has been done to Iran, again, North Korea, Venezuela, these other places, Syria increasingly, um, to do the same thing to Russia, then, you know, it starts to, to make some sense. And that's, that's really what uh, the Bloomberg piece is talking about. I mean, it's, it's collective punishment. It's collective kind of uh, imposed impose sanctions and then forget it. We just kind of go on our daily lives uh, while the people in the target, target country suffer. Uh, but that's the point. The goal is, who knows, maybe just to, to leave these things in place in perpetuity, and maybe it's some kind of nebulous regime change, which, uh, again, has never happened. I mean, nobody could look at U.S. sanctions and say that that's a realistic goal. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, it's sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, I mean, it's disingenuous for the Biden administration or for people in the Biden administration to say, gosh, this isn't working the way we thought it was going to. Like, how did they think it was going to work? There's there's only uh, the one model to go on, really. It's a kind of scary combination, I think, when having that, seeing how how harmful the sanctions are, of course, not to the alleged targets of the sanctions, but that combined with the fact that it looks like the United States is very interested in prolonging this war. Reading another headline, this one is from the New York Times. The U.S. says it won't pressure Ukraine to negotiate an end to the war. The United States will not pressure Ukraine into negotiating a ceasefire, even as Russia grinds out steady gains on the ground in the country's embattled east, a top Pentagon official said on Tuesday. We're not going to tell the Ukrainians how to negotiate, what to negotiate, and when to negotiate, said Colonel H. Cal, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. They're going to set those terms for themselves. So all of a sudden, the United States is shifting gears and becoming a country that likes to empower other countries to take <laughs> their, I, I know, yeah, to take their destiny into their own hands and, you know, self-determination and sovereignty and all these things. What's your take on that statement? Besides how funny it I is. Mean, I mean, I... <laughs> Well, I laugh because, I mean, if the Ukrainians, I wonder if the Ukrainians, you know, announce tomorrow that they're, you know, an intense late stage negotiations on a ceasefire that would leave Russia, you know, more or less uh, where it is now. Uh, I wonder if that the U.S. would be so supportive of a deal like that. Um, I suspect not. I suspect that this is, you know, we're not going to pressure the Ukrainians as long as their approach to negotiations kind of mirrors what the United States wants to get out of this war, uh, which is a long-term, I mean, people have said it. 
a long-term weakening of Russia, the isolation of Russia, you know, maybe, you know, getting rid of Putin, which again is not a realistic goal, but is something people have hinted around about. Um, you know, I, I suspect that if the Ukrainians suddenly got off that page, then then you would not see this kind of uh, oh, we're we're fully supportive of whatever they want to do. That that attitude would change quickly. And of course, Boris Johnson went to visit Zelensky, right? And kind of discouraged him from brokering a peace deal with Putin. Yeah, Boris has been there a couple of times, and I think he's delivered the same message both times, not to uh, not to negotiate a peace deal. This last time was right after uh, Macron and, and Olaf Scholz and uh, uh, Mario Draghi and, and I think the uh, Klaus Johannes from Romania went. And it was sort of like, it was weird. Like the dynamic of that trip was like Boris just showed up to say, hey, I'm here too. <laughs> like, you know, here I'm here, here I am. Uh, I'm going to Ukraine too. It's It's become sort of this like, Really, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a rite of passage almost for European leaders now to like pop off to to Ukraine and and show up in Kiev and shake Volodymyr Zelensky's hand and and like play that as a backdrop for their domestic political political audience, which strikes me as somewhat gross, but uh, that seems to be what it is now. And what about the way the U.S. is arming Ukraine? Can you comment on that? How sustainable a model is that? I think it's fairly sustainable and they've they've allocated I think almost 50 billion in in presidential drawdown authority which is the money that Biden goes to when he makes these announcements that we're sending in you know, another billion dollars or another uh, 500 million dollars or whatever weapons to Ukraine. Uh, so he, and he's got a ways to go to to max that out. So he can continue this uh for a while and of course it's all good news to defense contractors who get to you know make new weapons either to send directly to Ukraine or to replace the ones that uh, the U.S. sends to Ukraine. So, I mean, this is a model that that benefits a lot of people who have uh, fingers on important buttons in D.C. I, I don't think they're, uh, they'll run out of interest in, in continuing that. It seems like people are increasingly making it clear that this is a proxy war. Some people are no longer even pretending that it's not a proxy war. Obviously, people who are critical of this war have been calling it a proxy war. You know, my co-host on Useful Idiots, Aaron Mate, has been saying that. He's kind of been ringing the bell, sounding the alarms on that. But now you see people who are pro-intervention who are saying that this is a proxy war. And I wanted us to watch one video clip. Brad, if we could play this one video clip. A friend of show, well, he doesn't know he's a friend of the show. and He's never been on the show, but I'd love to have him on the show. Max Boot, he's actually been on the show in that I've played clips of him. But um, Max Boot, who is a, how would you describe him? A neocon? Yeah, a neocon, even, you know, he may even go beyond that a bit. But uh, I, I describe him as, uh, I think at some point, his brain dissolved and that hat that he has on and his, his drawing there uh, replaced it. That's a charitable way of describing whatever his condition is. So he had <laughs> something interesting to say on Morning Joe. Again, this is a guy who there's a great clip that I've played in the past of Max Boot and Steve Cohen, the late scholar of Russian history, Steve Cohen, where Max Boot fully tries to just McCarthyite him, Neil McCarthyite him, old school McCarthyite him. And Stephen Cohen just is in so elegantly and eloquently kind of shames him for doing what he's doing. Have you seen that clip, by the way? I haven't. No. That's, okay, maybe uh, I'll, I'll find. I'll look for it later because it's really. I'm I'm, I'm allergic to Morning Joe. I think, but. Uh, oh yeah, no. This is the one I'm talking about now. Sorry, that was from Anderson Cooper. Oh okay, all right. 
But this is a great clip that we have from Morning Joe, which Brad's going to play for us. Absolutely essential. And I think the key here is we have to understand that we're, we're making a mistake in the way that we think about the war, because we keep thinking about it as their war. The Ukrainians are fighting. We need to think about it as our war. Putin is waging war on the West. He is trying to destroy the rules-based international order that we Americans, we Europeans, we all stand for this. This is a direct threat to all of us. And we need to understand this is not a foreign aid project. This is not charity. This is self-defense. This is the front line of freedom right here in the Donbass. The Ukrainians are fighting and dying for all of us. We need to step up. And to echo what Ed Luce was saying, it is unacceptable that right now the Ukrainians are being outgunned 10 to 1 in artillery, 10 to 1. They are losing over 100 soldiers a day. The United States has not seen those kinds of losses since World War II. The Ukrainians are willing to fight. They are willing to die. They are defending their land. They are standing up to one of the most evil dictators in the world. But they don't have the weapons they need to get the job done. They have just enough to prevent a Russian victory, but they don't have enough to defeat the Russians to win for Ukraine. And that is unacceptable. All of us need to step up. The Europeans in particular, as Joe suggested, because uh, they are doing less than we are. But we need to step up, too. We're not providing Gray Eagle drones that the Ukrainians need. We're not providing as many multiple launch rocket systems as they need. All of us collectively can be and should be doing more because we need to understand this is our fight that the Ukrainians are on the front lines of. So. Hard to know where to begin there. Yeah, up to you. I'll follow your lead. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, everything there's pretty much wrong on one level or another. This is not a war against the West. Ukraine is not in NATO. There is no vital U.S. interest in Ukraine or in protecting Ukraine. Uh, this is our involvement is, is, a, is a choice. It's a conscious choice. Um, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I think Max is uh, missing Afghanistan, which he characterized, you know, uh, around the time of the U.S. withdrawal. Uh, as the permanent frontier war, it should be treated as such, uh, you know, from like the 19th century frontier wars. Uh, and the United States should stay there indefinitely. Now he's found a new cause, lucky lucky for him, I guess, uh, to replace that conflict. Um, but but the argument here that, that there's some vital interest in defending the rules-based order, I mean, if the United States wants to defend the rules-based order, it should start by actually abiding by the rules like we we never abide by the rules we didn't in iraq we didn't in afghanistan we didn't you know we don't when we uh you know impose these uh massive you know humanitarian risking life-threatening sanctions on on countries just because they don't sort of toe the line um it, it's it's ridiculous to talk about the rules-based order it's it's ridiculous to talk about uh, any rules-based order that the U.S. is supposedly the architect of. And this is a big part of the reason why, by the way, uh, you talk about, you know, the Biden administration having to do, uh, you know, 
extra diplomacy to try to get countries in the Middle East and in Africa, uh, even sort of, you know, Latin America and parts of Asia on board with this, you know, whole program of, of sanctioning Russia. Part of the reason for that is that the people in these countries see the hypocrisy of talking about defending uh, a rules-based order where the United States gets to break all the rules, but everybody else has to uh, has to sort of abide by them. Um, the the last thing I'll say, and I'm I sort of you know like losing the, my train of thought because I can't remember everything that he said there. Uh, but this talk of like sending more advanced weapon systems, uh, this is really uh, we're on a slippery slope. We're already on that slippery slope. We started sending the the multiple launch rocket systems. We've only sent a few so far, but the demand, the calls to send more, are only going to going to grow. And I suspect that that you know the United States. Biden administration, uh, the military industrial complex will all be on board with that. Uh, but you start to get into things like advanced drones uh, and more kind of more sophisticated hardware. These are things that may not be able to survive the environment that, that we would be sending them into. There was just a piece, I think, um, I don't know if it was in the, the Times, it was somewhere today, I sort of brushed past it, uh, that, you know, Ukrainians, even Ukrainian um, military officials aren't sure that they want gray eagle drones because they're so close to uh they're fighting so close to the russian border and so close to russian air defense systems it's not clear they would even be that effective uh but you're gonna you, you know you just keep calling for more 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 and that's how you uh you know that's how you wind up uh creating a, a bigger quagmire and 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 meshing the united states even deeper into this conflict yeah, and I mean, the, his argument, I was waiting for him to compare Putin to Hitler because that's a favorite argument of certain people. Like we saw Michael McFall make that argument. I mean, people have even argued that it was, it was almost like comedic. A couple of people in one weekend were saying how at least Hitler didn't X, Y, Z. They were actually positioning Putin right. as, as worse than Hitler. Right. Um, Putin didn't do that in this particular instance. But this idea that this over-vilification of Putin as on a kind of civilization-based mission, eliminationist, or people are throwing around the word genocide, do you think that they believe this stuff or are they just saying this because they want to scare people into supporting the U.S. proxy war? I think that some of the language that gets used, genocide in particular, is mis guided it's meant to shock people it's you know sort of meant to get uh to kind of dig at people's emotions and 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 feelings i mean putin for all i know may think of himself as on some kind of a great civilizational quest i don't you know there's been a lot of like armchair psychoanalyzing uh, going on with respect to putin and and even like medical diagnosis you know there've been these videos of him you know looking puffy or whatever. And that, you know, sends us into a two day thing about what is he dying of? Um, and, and, you know, I mean, that's all kind of nonsense, uh, uh, on some level, but yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's possible that, uh, you know, he's an older guy. I don't know if he's unwell or not. It doesn't, you know, but either way, he's sort of, uh, you know, got fewer years ahead of him than behind him. Maybe he's thinking in terms of, uh, like, I don't want to be the guy who lost Ukraine or something like that. That could be possible. Uh, but I think to throw around overheated terms like, you know, uh, this is some kind of civilizational struggle for survival or genocide um, is, is really meant more to play at people's sympathies than, than an actual attempt to analyze what's going on. Someone in the chat asked this question, what is this rules-based order? Derek, please explain rules-based order. What are they? Who set them? 
Uh, well, the United States set them, and we don't really talk about what they are because uh, we just know when somebody's violated them. I mean, that's uh, that's essentially what this is. It's a rhetorical phrase. It's meant to signify uh, the instantiation of the the unipolar world that existed, let's say, in the 1990s when the United States was unquestionably uh, the global superpower. But, um, you know, every action the United States has taken since the end of the Cold War on, on the world stage, or almost every action, has shown that, you know, we don't think there are any rules. We don't abide by any rules. We do what we want because uh, we are a, a military power and economic power, you know, increasingly or decreasingly so the latter, I guess. Um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a rhetorical tool. It's not, it's not meant to be a meaningful kind of, uh, phrase. Like there's a list of rules somewhere that we're, we're trying to uphold. What is the cost on other countries? Like what is the fallout going to be of these sanctions on other countries? What's going to happen to everywhere from like Europe to Africa? Right. So, I mean, we're already seeing some of the fallout of the war, which which is sort of the the invasion plus the uh, the sanctions and the effect that they've had that's had on um, food exports. Um, you know, the Russians have stopped exporting uh, much of their food, although they, they you know they've made some exceptions, I think, for uh, Central Asia. Um, Ukraine has been unable to export food. And these are I mean, these are two breadbasket countries. They export a lot of grain. Uh, they export a lot of cooking oil. And so you're seeing, um, you know, in countries that are food importers that tend to be food importers like Egypt, Sudan, um, you know, Lebanon. Uh, this has been a big, uh, big concern in Lebanon um, and and elsewhere in Africa and, and parts of the Middle East. Yemen, for example, you know, this this is uh, really impacting humanitarian efforts there. Um the 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 shortages of and the you know the the consequent rise in price uh, of uh, basic commodities is is a huge blow for these places. Um, in terms of Europe, I mean, I think the big impact is is in terms of energy, um, and and that'll come uh, primarily in the form of natural gas. Now, Europe, the EU has already imposed um, a, an embargo on most of the Russian oil that it was importing. Uh, they'll have to figure out how to, you know, find new sources or uh, alternative energy, uh, you know, to replace that oil. Um, but Europe is far more dependent on Russia for natural gas. And, and we've seen just over the last week or two, uh, the Russians cutting gas shipments to Europe uh, substantially. I mean, cutting off entire countries, cutting, you know, shipments to Germany by half or more. Um, and, and that's really going to hurt Europe as winter approaches. And, and there have been uh, moves to, you know, try to uh, impose conservation measures to find alternative suppliers. Um, you know, the, the alternative energy, the kind of green alternative energy option is always always seems to be last on the list because it's the most complicated and, and would require the most infrastructure investment. God forbid we save the world. Yeah, right. I mean, God forbid you take this opportunity to do something good for the planet. Absolutely. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's that's going to be a big blow uh, to Europe. And, and we haven't even seen, I think, the worst of that, which will come uh, if these gas supplies aren't somehow um, you know, replaced by winter time, and people are trying to heat their homes and uh, being told, you know, sorry, we don't have uh, we don't have enough gas for that. I wanted to share with you an upcoming conference in case you want to attend it. It's called Decolonizing Russia: 
<laughs> Ooh, sounds fun. I know. Okay, so here we go. It's called Decolonizing Russia, a Moral and Strategic Imperative. It's taking place Thursday, June 23rd at 10 a.m. You can register. It's the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe, also known as the Helsinki Commission. They announced the following online briefing. So this is something that the Helsinki Commission is putting together. It goes a little something like this. Russia's barbaric war on Ukraine, and before that on Syria, Libya, Georgia, and Chechnya. Okay, Russia, I didn't realize had a war on Syria or Libya. Has exposed the Russian Federation's viciously imperial character to the entire world. Its aggression also is catalyzing a long overdue conversation about Russia's interior empire, given Moscow's dominion over many indigenous non-Russian nations and the brutal extent to which the Kremlin has taken to suppress their national self-expression and self-determination. Serious and controversial discussions are now underway about reckoning with Russia's fundamental imperialism and the need to, quote, decolonize, end quote, Russia for it to become a viable stakeholder in European security and stability. As the successor to the Soviet Union, which cloaked its colonial agenda in anti-imperial and anti-capitalist nomenclature, Russia has yet to attract appropriate scrutiny for its consistent and oftentimes brutal imperial tendencies. Then they list the participants, which include Casey Michael, who's part of the Hudson Institute. Casey Michelle, oh, I believe. Always a good place. Yeah, always a good yeah, place. To always go the for place. Your they don't like to list that, but that's where he's where where he's at. He's the author of American Kleptocracy. Hannah Hopko, chair, Democracy in Action Conference, former member of the Ukrainian Parliament. Erica Marat, Associate Professor, College of International Security Affairs, National Defense University. Butakaz Kasiembekova, Lecturer, University of Basel. And Fatima Tlis, Circassian Journalist. So what are your thoughts on that? Anything in here you'd like to unpack? I, I mean, <laughs> uh, you're right to, to wonder about the barbaric Russian war on Syria, given that Russia was invited by the Syrian government to intervene. The barbaric Russian war on Libya is also iffy to me, given that they were invited. They, I mean, you know, it's it's Wagner Group, I guess, Wagner Group mercenaries, but uh, they were they were brought in by one of the two Libyan governments, and really, you know, the the one that had a working parliament. So, um, you know, arguably in both of those cases, uh, they were they were asked to come in by the legitimate government of those countries. I'd like to know if we're doing decolonization everywhere, because I could think of some places that have been colonized more recently than Russia supposedly colonized all these non-Russian peoples. Uh, So maybe we could, maybe we could start with like first in first or last in first out and work our way back. I don't know. That that might be a good idea. Good start. What do they say? You're like supposed to clean up your own side of the street. Yeah, that's that's another thing I guess that uh you know you could you could say about this like take care of your your own colonization <laughs> before you go uh, go worry about somebody else's. Decolonize yourself first. But I think it's as interesting the woke language. Oh the yeah, the capture, yeah, the capture like the the leftist rhetoric is is fascinating, yeah. It's also funny because as if when they say Russia has yet to attract appropriate scrutiny for its consistent, oftentimes brutal imperial tendencies, that's like all the rage. I feel like that's what everyone is doing. It's very orientalizing also. It seems like there's been a fair amount of scrutiny. I will I will say that. Yeah. But maybe we can go to the conference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it looks it looks great. I mean, yeah. uh, great panel should be a f- scintillating discussion. Yeah. 
It's funny. Someone in the chat actually said Ukraine asked for American help. I guess they aren't legitimate, though. So that person's being sarcastic. But how do we kind of grapple with that? Yes, there are people in countries who are asking for help. What do you think the criteria should be for whether or not the United States? I mean, I I was going to say helps, but I would put helps in quotes because from my point of view, I don't actually think that it's ultimately helping Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I try to look at this on a on a more like a, on a on a broader scope and in terms of like you're always going to have cases where you can make the argument that the empire serves a good purpose like we're serving a good purpose this is a worthy cause these are uh, you know worthy people defending their country from and we should help them um but if you look at the the systems that you're you're fueling by doing that and and this is uh you know the way the way the assistance the US assistance has gone here is particularly acute i think because it's mostly in the form of buying weapons and sending weapons and that results in you know funneling billions of dollars to defense contractors who then turn around and lobby in DC for a 800 billion a year military budget, 900 billion a year military budget. We're going to be at a trillion in a couple of years. Um, and, and you just perpetuate uh, this system that views every problem as a military problem that has only one solution, uh, which is always a military solution, whether it's directly or um, you know, through things like training and weapons. Um, and I, I just, you know, I feel like at some point that has to be uh, you have to just pull the plug on it. And, and even if that means, um, you know, this particular cause or that particular cause, gosh, you know, could, couldn't we uh, make an exception here or there? I, 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 that just keeps the system going to me. And it's, um, you know, I, I think the, the bigger picture uh, is, is important here. I mean, especially because it seems clear that the real motives for the United States, I mean, spoiler alert, are not, humanitarian ones are not about saving the lives of Ukrainians, because if it were, they would be much more involved in negotiations and diplomacy. So I think that I don't really believe, I guess I'm, I'm agreeing with you, and I don't believe that the United States can kind of just accidentally, while doing things in the interest of empire, help people. I don't think it works that way. Yeah, I, I, it's it's almost never the case i mean i you know i don't want to say never because i'll think of some counter example you know an hour from now but almost never the case that that you get to a good place through you know using the empire in this way um and i you know i mean i would i would say on the you know, the question of peace talks you know at this point you know i i i i agree with letting the Ukrainians take the lead and and negotiating their own settlement. What I wonder is, as I said earlier, uh, when the Ukrainians are prepared to do that, is the United States still going to let them take the lead? Uh, are we going to be willing to peel off these sanctions if that's the price of, uh, you know, supporting Ukraine in, in negotiating a peace deal? Um, and I, I question that. And it's, I mean, it's obviously speculation. We don't know. Uh, until it actually happens. But I, I question whether there's going to be a willingness to really um, put the sanctions on the table and say, look, you know, if this is what uh, it takes for you to negotiate the peace deal that you want, then we will uh, abide by that. I, I I doubt it, but, you know, we'll see. Rev. Edmund Bollea says, this conference reminds me, Dr. Mearsheimer is right. Nations are self-serving entities with aspirations to empire. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you so much, Claude Belojo, for your generous donation, your super sticker. Thank you for that. Sparky says Ukraine's much better off under Russia than NATO. So wanted to ask you about some other parts of the world. We just had historic elections in Colombia where a leftist won for the first time. We also had an election in France. And then we're having something interesting happening in uh, Israel. So you can start with everyone you want to start talking about. I mean, we can start in Colombia with the election of Gustavo Petro, which was somewhat surprising to me. I mean, he won the first round. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.